Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Perkins Platform. This is a solutions-oriented podcast and live radio show. Each broadcast, we dedicate just about 30 minutes to explore topics of interest for leaders and professionals in education and a variety of other disciplines, and this is your host, Brian Perkins. Today, we have a professor uh, from Syracuse University and the, uh, who is also the chair of communications department and the director of the media studies master's program from an internationally renowned program actually um, a lot of us are familiar with the Syracuse University School of Communications and so I'm honored to have um, uh, Professor Bradley Gorham here today uh, to talk about his research and um, have a conversation with me about uh, some of the work that he's been doing so welcome Brad well, thank you very much, Dr. Perkins. I uh, appreciate the invitation. I'm glad to be here. Oh, so glad to have you. So, I, you know, you. So, I know that you. Your background is in mass communication, and uh, really fascinated about your work. I've read um, several of the articles you've written on how media impacts um, the way we think, uh, but also. Um, how media impacts our implicit biases around race and gender. So, I, you know, I'm going to get there in just a moment, but I, first I'd like for you to say a few words about, um, you know, what you, what you do on a regular basis, and then let's talk about your research because I'm really dying to get to that, um, but I really would love to hear uh, about the other work you do and the programs you administer. Oh, well, thank you. Um, I mean, for those of us who are in the uh, academy, we know that being a department chair is not exactly uh, a, a, a fantastic job in the sense that, oh, yeah. uh, you know, I mean, it, it's, I think it, it comes with a certain level of, of uh, um, notoriety, I suppose. Yeah. But um, yeah, yeah I've, I I uh, have been department chair now for oh about eleven years, uh, oh, as well as directing the media studies master's program, which is a is a research oriented program, and I really enjoy working with our graduate students and helping them, you know, learn the 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 tools of research, both the methods and the concepts and the theories, and then being able to apply it to the research questions that they're interested in. Mm -hmm. So, you know, as a professor, I mean, the great advantage of that is, you know, I've got students who are working on like the positive uh, uh, emotional effects of coming across cool content online. And then I've got other students working on like, how does VR help you learn a language and mm. just, uh, you know, a, a, just a, a real range and, you know, it keeps me young and, and yeah. it keeps me interested. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, uh, you know, you know, being a professor is really a great job if you're yeah. curious about the world and sure. like to surround yourself with smart people. Sure. Sure. Well, I certainly know uh, about that, that um, the job of the department chair, I've, I've been in that role before, and it is 
I wouldn't just say I wouldn't necessarily say it's a thankless job, but it is a difficult job. No one no one likes the department chair. <laughs> um, so um, there are a lot of things you have to do that are unpopular. So, um, but I, you know, you said something that made me think about, um, you know, the work itself that you're doing in terms of the the research and and I um I thought about a research project that I had several years ago where I did a a national study on school climate and so we we asked students and uh teachers and parents about their experience in school but um when we talked to the parents and actually through a survey we asked parents um, how did they get most of their information about school? Even because these were parents that had children in school, and so it was either kind of personal experience and so on and so forth. But a significant portion of the parents, so the number two reason or number two way that they got information about the quality of the school was through the media. And I just thought that was really interesting um, because having also served on a school board, I know that we struggled a lot where, you know, we'd, we'd have to have conversations with the local newspaper about how they reported, you know, say shootings that had nothing to do with, um, with a school. They'd say, oh, um, this was a shooting near X elementary school. And, I mean, it would be 10 o'clock at night when no kids are there, but they use schools as a, as a place, a point of reference. And it, it colored the way people viewed the school and the school system. So we had to have conversations and, but it just made me think about how important the media is in perceptions and opinions. Um, And I know that that's a lot about what you have uh, studied. So one one area in your bio that you uh, indicate that you study is how media impacts our implicit biases around race and gender. Tell me a little bit about what that exactly means. How how does the media impact our implicit biases? Oh, I mean that's such a great question, and it's an important one. Um, and uh, to answer that question, I think we have to like sort of step back a little bit and say, you know, think about how we learn anything really well, right? We learn through repetition. Our brains are really, really uh, set up to respond to repetition and to learn things through repetition. That's how we learn a new language. I've been trying to, as a a, 54-year-old man, I've been trying to learn German for the past few years. And let me tell you, it's really hard uh, when your brain, brain isn't as plastic as it is when you're yeah, really young, but, yeah. but you can't remember learning your first language, right? Your yeah. native language, yeah. because you started learning it uh, even before you were born. There's research that suggests, for instance, that, that while in the womb, uh, babies become accustomed to the sounds of their own language yeah. and respond to sounds from their own language better 
than sounds from languages they don't hear very often. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. our brains are set up to respond to repetition. Uh, Similarly, how do you learn a new instrument, right? Or or any instrument, right? I took piano lessons when I was a kid. You have to practice, practice, practice. So our brains are set up to, to respond to repetition. And the more you practice a thing or the more experience you have with a thing, the more your brain becomes accustomed to a certain set of stimuli being together, right? Mm -hmm. And psychologists call those schema. And schema develop through repeated and consistent exposure. Mm -hmm. And we have schema for like how to play the piano when I've been practicing for years and years. And we have schema for Um, you know, just what my language is and how I describe things because I've been using this language my entire Mm -hmm. life. Mm -hmm. Well, we also have schema for all kinds of other things around us. We develop schema around objects, like what are the key characteristics that define a chair, for instance. I'm, I'm sitting in one right now. And the thing is, if I ask you to describe well, let me ask you, what are the key characteristics of a chair? Mm-hmm. Like how would you – you see something out, you see a, something in a room. How do you know it's a chair? Mm-hmm. Like what do you look for? Well, it's got to have a place where your butt goes, yeah. right, that's at a certain yeah. height. It, it has a back uh, that you can lean your back against. It, it mm-hmm. might have – Armrests, but it might not, doesn't have to, but it mm-hmm. has certain characteristics. If it doesn't have a back, it's not a chair, it's a stool. Mm. How did you learn that? You know, did, did teachers in school sit down and say, this is what a chair is? No, you learned it through repeated and consistent exposure of a particular kind of furniture with a particular set of characteristics being called a chair all the time. And that's how you learned, right? So you have a schema for what a chair is or what a bicycle is. Have you ever been out, and, and being in New York City, I'm sure you've had this experience, where you see something that you know in your head it's a bicycle, but the design is so unusual it sort of stops you in your track and like, well, that's a weird-looking bicycle. Sure, um, sure. I'm thinking of like the recumbent bikes, you know, where people sit back sit and the down. pedals yeah, are yeah. – Sure. Exactly. Right. You know, it's a bicycle. It meets the characteristics of a bicycle, but it is unusual from what mm-hmm. you are used to seeing. And that's why it sort of calls your attention out to it. Sure. That lets when you're surprised by something that lets you know you have a schema that expected you or, or, or led you to believe that you would be seeing something one way or hearing mm-hmm. something one way. And mm-hmm. instead, you know, reality smacks you in the face. and says, No, 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 it's not that. It's this. Right. Well, if you so, think so about let me, it, let me mass... ask you this. Let me, yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah. Let, me, let me ask you this. So, so would it be fair to say, and I hate to say it this way, but is, are we saying that we have an implicit bias to what a chair is and what a chair looks like? Well, if, if implicit meaning you don't think about the characteristics of a chair – Mm-hmm. And bias means you nonetheless have an expectation about Patient. what that mm-hmm. thing ought to look like, mm-hmm. then yeah. Okay. Yeah. So what – I mean where I was going with this is basically a stereotype is a kind of schema, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a, it, that tells us the characteristics we expect to see for a person belonging to a particular social group or, 
or at least the social group we think they belong to, um, based on repeated and consistent exposure to any kind of representation of that group over time. And what system in our society is designed, <laughs> I mean, is really good at repeatedly and consistently representing people from various social groups? Mm-hmm. It's the media. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. Our, it's our television that we watch. It's the articles we read online. It's the films we watch. It's, it's what we see on our social media, on our Facebook Um, If you were going to design a system to teach people uh, certain ways of seeing the world, you would essentially design modern mass media because they're really good at repeatedly and consistently constructing things in some ways rather than others, people Mm -hmm. in some ways Mm -hmm. rather than others. Mm -hmm. And our brain responds to that. Sure. Well, you know, you, you, what you're saying uh, resonates with me. Um, I, I want to ask you a question that I, I was thinking about, just thinking about the, the way you said media impacts our implicit biases around race and gender. So my question is really, so what comes first? Is it that we, we saw it first? And we reinforced it with expectations, meaning when I say we, not necessarily as individuals, but as a society, um, or, or did, did, it, did we speak it in some cases, perhaps intentionally, to skew people to think one way or another, and then it was a self-fulfilling prophecy, um, and I, I imagine you probably have examples of both, but what what generally has your research borne out? If that's one of the questions, is you know what what caused a certain perspective or perception of a group by race and gender? Was it that they were actually a certain way and it was blown up, or did did people unfairly uh, make make pronouncements about their race and gender, and then it became so? That's a great question, and it doesn't have a simple, easy answer, because Mm. on the one hand, you know, the stereotypes that we have of certain groups today are related to the stereotypes that those groups had, or that that dominant culture had, and constructed of those groups, you know, last year, and 10 years ago, and 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, Stereotypes are, are very good at at adapting, let's say, to changing circumstances, mm-hmm. but they also still carry a certain embedded hierarchy in them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's funny, I mean, one of the things that I've been involved, what actually got me interested in a lot of this to begin with was when I was an undergrad, I did a study abroad in Australia. And Australians had some really interesting stereotypes of Americans, but I was not prepared for the um, unusualness of the stereotypes that Americans had of Australians when I came back. And I said, Mm. oh, yeah, I was just in Australia for six months. People were like, do they have computers there? You know, (laughs) and they I mean, they asked all kinds of crazy questions. Yeah, and yeah. it was clear that the only thing they knew about Australia was they had seen Crocodile Dundee, 
you know, the the movie. And and yeah. the half of that movie that is set in Australia is in the outback where, you know, nobody lives and there isn't any water and it's dry and dusty and, you know, the men have to fight off crocodiles apparently, right. at least if right. you watch the movie. But so they didn't know that Australia was a more urbanized country than the United States in terms of where the people actually live. Mm-hmm. They didn't, you know, the people asking me these questions, they didn't know. Mm-hmm. The only schema that they had of Australia came from this one movie and a handful of television ads that Paul Hogan did uh, for uh, tourism for Australia. Mm-hmm. And that's what got me thinking about the power of media, especially if it's about a, a group of people who I don't actually know, mm-hmm. I don't interact with. Mm-hmm. All, uh, the only thing I'm ever going to learn about them is what I come across in the television I watch, the magazines right. I read, the movies I watch. Right. And so for a person who doesn't have a lived experience to counteract those stereotypes, mm-hmm. the media I consume are going to have a really powerful impact. Sure. But here's the thing, right? When, uh, at, at least when I was a, a young person, um, you know, television in the United States was ABC, NBC, CBS, and PBS. That was it. Right. It was. Right. I'm old enough to remember, you know, before cable and certainly before internet. Right. Um, and and so I'm the sure information... you also remember when when the TV channels went off at night. You know, with the playing yeah. of the national yeah. anthem, right? <laughs> yeah. But but so the information environment for television viewers, for instance, in yeah. the 1970s was very different from the television environment or the media environment for us now. Because you and I could consume, let's say, 10 hours a day of television, right? But your 10, your 10 hours and my 10 hours could be really, really different. And so the message environment – could be really, really dramatically different and tell us different things. And, and I think we're seeing that a little bit in how people, are, how people reacted to uh, COVID and the vaccines and all the misinformation out there, right. um, to the, you know, the millions of Americans who believe the big lie that, that you know, the, the election was stolen from President Trump. Um, mm-hmm. They're living in very different message environments than the one that I'm living in. And so they have very different beliefs than I have mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. these, about these things. Mm-hmm. And so if the message environment tells you, you know, that, uh, you know, a group of people, uh, you know, are dangerous and violent and, you know, you really should be scared of them if that's all the messaging I'm getting, and I don't actually have know a lot of the people from that social group in my everyday life, then you can see how that repeated and consistent exposure builds an automatic association between that group and negative attitudes, and that's what implicit bias is. It's that automatic yeah. feeling and belief that you don't necessarily question because it just seems like it's so natural. Right. And and when we're talking about media, we're not just talking about news, right? We're talking about 
images that people see in movies, TV, newspaper, correct? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we, we're talking about everything and, and uh, social media now, too. Right, right. Right, which which made me think about um, some some research on images that I read years ago, and where um, there were groups of people that are placed on you know basically picture cards, and they'd ask people who's the doctor, who's the lawyer, who's the the uh, postman or or other uh, jobs, and and so it's interesting the way or who's who's the um, the trustworthy candidate. I saw one of those where they, they, you know, based on the way people are dressed or the way they look, um, oh, looking yeah. into mm-hmm. what people bring to that, which is, it's really fascinating. Um, which I, I mean, I'd love to hear your opinion too, though, because there's a lot of buzz that has happened. I, I would say, if I would say the better part of the last, 15 to 20 years, and, and I'm sure you know it, it, it may be much longer than that. But the buzz that I'm talking about is where um, people have buzzed around the when we're talking about this impact, but the way people see groups of people as, you know, we were talking about race and gender, where you see races of people and the perceptions that exist that there there are underlying currents of of belief systems you know that have been perpetuated for a lot of years whereas uh, this group of people are lazy this group of people are crooks these are really smart um they're good at math these are good at you know um uh, good they, most of the people are cons and so you hear about this a lot and and so the the buzz also is around that there are people out there that intentionally perpetuate that. And what what's your opinion about that? Do you think you know? I, and I've had people ask me, "Do you really think that there's someone out there that's saying I want to put this person in in my my television show that looks like this, talks like that, for the purpose of?" of perpetuating a stereotype what do you what, what's your opinion on that well um i i i mean i think there are there are nefarious actors out there um in in any industry anywhere right i mean there are always going to be some people who essentially have no morals and say mm-hmm. you know i don't care if this is bad you know it, it makes me money right now and i think there's certainly some of those in the, in media um, people who will quite frankly push whatever kind of extreme or crazy sounding idea or racist idea or sexist idea because they know it appeals to a particular uh, a group of audience members that they're trying to court and, and, and there are advertisers willing to support them. Um, so, so there are always some of that, but, I think the heart of your question is, is the average casting director in Hollywood or in New York who's casting, you know, the latest episode of Law and Order or, um, you know, we need some some henchmen, you know, in our in our uh, superhero movie. 
Are they sitting there saying, well, if I cast this black actor, that could perpetuate stereotypes? No, they're not thinking that at all. But here's where implicit bias plays in. What do you think makes some character look more right for the part right, than right. some other mm-hmm. actor or actress, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, my my students hate it when I start using examples from Disney films that they <laughs> loved from their youth, right? Yeah. But yeah. if you go back to The Lion King, why did they pick uh, Whoopi Goldberg to voice mm. one of the evil hyenas, right? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Sure, it's because Whoopi is a dis- you know is a distinctive uh, you know actress and a distinctive voice. But I mean, it, it's we're not actually seeing Whoopi, right? Right. We're just right. hearing her voice, but That's she right. plays it in a particular way, right? Mm-hmm. They picked very, they they picked actors and actresses to sound the part, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that very much, especially if you want an audience to to instantly understand a character as being good or bad, uh, you know, one to worry about or not. You play into the stereotypes, so the yes. audience knows exactly how to view that character. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, every time you do that, repeatedly and consistently adding another example, right? And I started this discussion off by saying we respond; our brains respond to repetition. Yes. And so, what makes a particular character sound scary, right? And if you want, if you want a sinister sounding. Uh, character, right? Uh, maybe you, you know, you give them a, a high class sort of English accent, you know, yeah. or something. Yeah. Or if you, or if you want to make them sound smart, right? Yeah, I can remember. You, you, you won't believe uh, who came to mind when you said that. It's so funny when you just as you were talking, and I think this this is is really important for me to tell you because it it is exactly what you said. Vincent Price came to mind. Yes, Vincent Price, exactly, right? And yeah. every time we want a character to sound authoritarian, what do we do? We give them a German accent, mm. right? I lived in Germany for a number of years. The Germans mm. are very happy about that. Mm. But, but I mean, so, you know, that's, that's a way in which our implicit biases impact the production of, of media messages, right? But then also as audiences, like, you know, they're, they're triggering our stereotypes in, a, in an implicit way, in a way that we aren't necessarily consciously aware of so that we understand a character a particular way. But in so doing, they reinforce that stereotype. Yes. You know, so much of what, um, what happens in, in leadership or other areas has so much to do with the brain and you are yet another person that has come on uh, the podcast to, to bring us right back to, and we our brains get conditioned in certain ways. I can't tell you how many times this comes up uh, when we, when we're discussing uh, influences, it goes back to the fact that the brain gets wired a certain way. And um, and so which which brings me to another area that you you had started to talk about or you mentioned briefly was about the language piece. And I'd love to hear more about um, 
what you describe as subtle ways in which language reveals underlying stereotypes and intergroup bias. Now, the example you gave about Whoopi was kind of the, at least the way I interpreted it, was about her her actual kind of pronunciation, enunciation of of language. And but I didn't think about it in in terms of like the the actual words, but more how it's said. Is that is that fair? Or are you actually talking about the language that gets used from a syntax point of view? Well, in in that instance, I was really talking more about you know the sort of dialect and mm, and okay. the, the way that 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 Hollywood uses accents to try yeah. to help yeah. an audience you know sort of think about a particular character. But gotcha. some of the research that I've done has actually focused on the word choices themselves. Um, there, I mean, there is this thing, the, this phenomenon called the linguistic intergroup bias, which shows that we talk we we talk differently when we're trying to describe something that we have seen when it's mm. done by a member of an in-group who we identify with versus when it's done by a member of an out-group who we do not identify with. Mm-hmm. And we describe, you know, we might watch exactly the same thing, but we will describe it differently and in subtle ways, but ways that nonetheless um, mirror dominant stereotypes that we might hold. Mm-hmm. So let me give you an example. And, and this is, it's a well-known example uh, from research in, in linguistic intergroup bias, but it's the idea of if you see somebody hit another individual, you know, I'm, I'm walking to work and I, I see a student hit another student. Now there are four sort of different ways in which I could describe what I saw in terms of what's known as linguistic abstractness. Mm. And I, can, I could describe what I see very, very concretely using what are known as uh, descriptive action verbs, right? Mm-hmm. And so, for instance, I would say, oh, uh, he hit her. That's, vi- that's very concrete because I am describing an action that has a clear start and a clear end. It's observable. That's very concrete. And all that tells me about is a particular action. I don't know. There are no inferences there about the, about the victim, about the perpetrator. There's nothing. It's just it is a descriptive verb that says mm-hmm. what happened. Mm-hmm. Now, I could go a little bit more abstract from that and say he hates her. Mm-hmm. Uh, or no, I'm sorry. He hurt her. He hurt her. Right now I am starting to infer a little something, right? I'm inferring that, oh, the victim must have been hurt. And so now I'm getting a little bit more abstract, a little bit more away from the concrete, describable what I saw to now making inferences about people, right? Then the Mm -hmm. next step is he hates her. Now I've gone away from the victim to the perpetrator, and I'm saying, Mm -hmm. oh, he must have a state of thinking here. That has led him to do this. That's very abstract, but not nearly as abstract as going from a verb to an adjective and saying he is violent. Mm -hmm. So I could see the student hit another student and say, oh, he is violent. That's very abstract. Mm -hmm. Now, if the student is from a group, and this is what the research shows, right? If the student is from a group who I closely identify with, right? 
I am much more likely to describe what I saw using very concrete language. And because of the uh, ultimate attribution error, to attribute his actions to some external force. Yeah, something may – she must have must have uh, angered him, and maybe he wasn't – you know, he was – he had been drinking or something, but whatever. He – it, it's a you know it's 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 a one off right. Mm-hmm. But if mm-hmm. that student is from a group I don't identify with, is from an out group, I am much more likely to go to the abstract and use an adjective to describe what I saw. Uh. And an adjective asserts a a relatively stable uh, characteristic about a person, and that I am inferring based on seeing this one action. But I'm saying, mm-hmm. oh, he is violent. Mm-hmm. And, he, and, and sure, you could say, well, yeah, you, you just saw him hit her. So, yeah, I guess, I guess he is violent. But uh, that, to do that to somebody who's a member of an out group, that's, a, that's kind of like a self-protection mechanism. Mm-hmm. Uh, no member of my in-group would, would be so dastardly as to hit a person, right, or to be violent. Right. We are not right. violent people. So mm-hmm. there must be some external force that caused him to do that. that. But if it's an outgroup, especially a disliked outgroup, oh, you can't trust those people. They're also violent. Right, right. And and so, but adding judgment and value, right? That's the that's yeah. the underlying uh, piece there. But I I think about also labels that are sometimes and um, often controversial. Uh, what came to mind as you were talking uh, was where you've heard in some cases, some groups being described as refugees and other groups as immigrants. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that, but there are all kinds of labels that get placed on, and I I didn't think of it, but you gave me some good language here about in groups and out groups of people who are seem to be a part of, of a group or even desired and undesired groups, right? That it is in some cases um, people want you, they're going to put a certain label on certain groups because they want you to value a group, whether it's a racial group or gender group or ethnic group, um, a certain way. Yes. And, and the other thing, too, is they, uh, you know, sure, some people would do this quite uh, um, intentionally, right? I mean, there, mm-hmm. there's a whole influence industry out there who, you know, tests language to find the language that, that will best influence an audience, right? But sure. Those, but, but a lot of this language also gets reproduced by people without them realizing it. Right? Oh, absolutely. That we, that we think differently. I mean, think about how the Ukrainian uh, refugees, right? They're, what, two and a half million uh, Ukrainians have now, have now fled the country mm-hmm. and are in you mm-hmm. know, Poland and making their way into Germany and all this. How differently they're being described than the million-plus uh, refugees who fled from the Middle East into mm-hmm. Europe uh, in mm-hmm. 2015 and 2016. That's right. They were described very differently. Very differently. Yeah. No, absolutely. Wow. Well, I, you know, as I told you before we went live, that it's the fastest 30 minutes ever. And, <laughs> and we've actually gone over our 30 minutes, but it's been such a pleasure talking to you. You have uh, been so 
um, helpful to me in terms of understanding some new um, ways in which uh, media impact um, uh, our the way we think about race and gender. And um, and so I, I'm going to continue to to look be on the lookout for more of your research and and your your research group. Um, and so I'm I'm sure that uh, people listening in. I always like to say people eavesdropping on our conversation um, <laughs> have also benefited from this. So uh, just wishing you the best um, in your continued research. Um, thank you again for coming on, uh, Brad. Best wishes to you. Uh, go well. Stay well. Thank you very much. And to you. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.